Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit as we sit in your presence before your word. And we pray that as you speak, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that attends to your voice. God, I pray that you would break into our hearts and lives and that you would change us and that you would mold us and that you would shape us so that we could be your faithful people in this world. And we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So love makes people do strange things. Consider the story of Lu Gojing. So 50 years ago, Lou fell in love with his widowed, uh, with a widowed woman who was 10 years his elder. And so he was 19, she was 20, 29, and this arrangement would not be tolerated by his family. And so what did Lou and his wife do? Well, they ran away into a cave in the side of a mountain where they lived together for the next 50 years. And over the course of time, Lou hand-carved 6,000 steps into the mountain just to help his wife get around better, using nothing more than a hand chisel. And what have you husbands done lately? (laughs) Or consider another story, the one of Russian Alexei Baikov, who concocted a bizarre proposal plan to find out if his true love, Irina, really wanted to be with him for the rest of his life. Alexei hired a movie director, stuntman, makeup artist, and even a scriptwriter to get this stage a bogus car crash so that when his girlfriend, Irina, arrived, she would be convinced that he was dead. Yeah, that's a brilliant idea, Alexei. Irina writes, we'd arranged to meet at a certain place, but when I arrived there were mangled cars everywhere, ambulances, smoke, and carnage. And then I saw Alexei covered in blood, lying in the road, and a paramedic told me he was dead, and I just broke down in tears. And then dead Alexei climbed to his feet and proposed to Irina, still covered in fake blood. He said, quote, I wanted her to realize how empty her life would be without me. Isn't that about the most sweet thing you've ever heard? What a jerk, right? I mean, the shocking thing is that she said yes. So one more. This is the story of husband and wife Neil and Jacqueline Megson. And you know how they say that married couples over time begin to look alike? All those hours staring lovingly into each other's eyes, you eventually take on the same smile, the same raising of the eyebrows, etc. Well, Neil and Jacqueline took things to a whole new level. So deep was their love, so tightly knit their union, they began to believe that they were, in fact, the same person. And so rather than watching natural biology slowly twist their faces into a similar resemblance, they paid for plastic surgery to look exactly alike. They even went by one name, Genesis Briar Porridge. And though the wife died in 2007, the the husband calls himself we to this day. 
That's just precious, isn't it? Just melts your heart. Love makes people do strange things. Or maybe those stories prove that love makes strange people do strange things, right? Well, you know, one of the strangest, most frightening, most difficult and beautiful and life-giving things love will ever make a human being do is to pledge oneself to another broken human being in a lifelong covenant of marriage. I don't know if it ever struck you like this, but the marital vows, quite frankly, are scary. You know, any sentence that begins with the words, will you, and ends with the phrase, till death do us part, and whose center is full of demanding verbs like love and honor and submit and care for, to which you are asked to respond favorably in front of a crowd of witnesses is nothing short of terrifying, right? Well, what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about the covenant of marriage. Now, I recognize that there are some of you in this room, of course, you're not yet married. Some are too young. Uh, Some might be widowed or divorced. Uh, Some would like to be married and you're not. Some uh, don't have any desire to be married at all. Some of you are married and you don't want to be married anymore, you know. But wherever you find yourself, I want to suggest that God has a word for you today because even though marriage is the most intense of relationships, what we learn about marriage in Scripture has application for any close relationship we are in, whether it's with a roommate or a parent or a child or a friend. The principles here apply to you. And so God has a word to you this morning in, his te- in this text. And so we're going to look together at the most foundational of texts in, of marriage, and that's in Genesis 2. So we've been in this series called Every Square Inch. We've been talking together about how the lordship, how the saving, reconciling love of Jesus applies to every square inch of our lives. And primarily, we've been looking together at Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae, where he explores and unpacks these themes. But this week and next week, I want to draw back into Genesis chapter 2 and look specifically there at what it says about marriage, because uh, this is the foundational text for Paul's understanding of marriage. This actually was the core text that Jesus himself quotes and alludes to in his longest extended teaching on marriage. In fact, you could even go so far as to say that this is, this is likely the most formative little teaching on marriage given in the history of the world. It is the thing that has informed and shaped not only the, the, the teaching in the New Testament on marriage, but how many, many of us in the Western world think and process about marriage. And, and the foundational text is right here, and it is beautiful, and it is multi-layered, and it has so much to teach us about marriage. And so this week, we want to look at it under three headings. Number one, uh, we're going to talk today about the essence of marriage. Second, we're going to talk about the challenge of marriage. And then we're going to talk, thirdly, about the fruits of a healthy marriage. So the essence, the challenge, and the fruit. So let's first talk about the essence of marriage. And I want you to see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. But before we read it, let's just set this text in its context. So many of you will know the story well. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed life into the man, and the man became a living being. And then God looks at the man, and he is there alone in the world. 
And even though everything around him is perfect, in fact, God has declared that everything is very good. There's one thing that is not good. It is not good for the human to be alone. And so God decides to bring a partner to come alongside the man. And first, he, uh, he, he, he brings each of the animals to the man to see what he would call them. But then among the animals, there is not a helper suitable for the man. And so God puts the man to sleep, and he takes a rib from his side, and he fashions from the rib a woman. And then the man wakes up, and behold, in front of his eyes is this incredibly beautiful naked woman. And the man bursts forth in this song, this poem of praise, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of sight. You know, he bursts forth in song, you know, he's like, I've been looking at aardvarks all day and look at her, you know, and and then God who played the role of the father taking the, the woman down the aisle to the man, he then performs the role of pastor and performs the first wedding. And the two become one, and then these words. The author says, look, what I'm writing here about this one incident is an archetype for all marriage. There's something here for us to learn that is general and broad and universal for all marriage, and it's this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's two words I want you to observe in this statement. He talks about leaving, and then he talks about cleaving. He says, for this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and then cleave to his wife. This word cleave is covenantal language. Uh, The word in Hebrew is actually used uh, to describe it other parts in the Old Testament for blood that stains a garment. In the same way that that blood sticks to permanently that garment, the man should stick to permanently his wife. And so what's being described here is an exclusive and a permanent lifelong bond, a covenant. And that's the essence of marriage. You know, I tell couples who have come to uh, get married, uh, you know, they're agonizing over the DJ and the florist and the, uh, you know, the caterers and the wedding lists and all this stuff. And I say, look, the real action in the wedding, you know, the, the, the thing, you know, you're agonizing, you're paying so much for all these things, but the real action in a, in a wedding is what happens at the altar when you exchange the vows. And then I hand them my bill and I say, so don't be surprised by how expensive this is. <laughs> no, I don't do that. But listen, the real action in a wedding is the exchange of the vows. Vows because marriage is created not by force or coercion, but by words. The word given, the word received, and then the word honored in faithfulness and trust. Words in which you pledge yourself to another to be loyal and steadfast, to stay together through the thick and the thin in good times as well as bad, to achieve together what neither of you could do alone. And here is the essence of marriage. It's an exclusive, it's a permanent binding covenant between a man and a woman, epitomized in that great line, forsaking all others, I cling to you. 
You know, there's two basic types of relationships, you could say. There are consumer relationships, and then there are covenant relationships. I have a consumer relationship with the restaurant Chiquita Bonita down on Foothill. When I want a delicious chicken enchilada covered in green sauce or a shredded beef enchilada or sometimes that short rib meat inside the enchilada, can you, can you feel me? <laughs> covered in red sauce and cheese. I go to Chiquita Bonita. But look, if the food quality drops or the price goes up and I can find better enchiladas at a better cost somewhere else, I will leave the restaurant and I'll go to a different restaurant that meets my needs better. Why? Because in a consumer-vendor relationship, my individual needs trump the relationship. But in a covenant relationship, it is the exact opposite. The relationship, the demands, the obligation that you have toward the other in the relationship trumps even your own personal wants and needs. Of course, a parent-child relationship is the perfect prime example of a covenant relationship. You know, if my child uh, wets their bed or cries or is ill-behaved, I don't say, I've had it with you, and then go drop them off at somebody else's doorstep. No, look, the relationship trumps my own personal needs. I lay aside my needs out of the demands and the obligation that I have for the relationship, and that is marriage. The relationship trumps your individual needs, and you stick with the relationship. You are bound to this relationship through thick and thin till death do us parts. It's a covenant relationship. And it is that covenant relationship that keeps you from walking away. And that's good. You know, research has shown that people who are asked, are you happy in your marriage? Uh, you know, very often people will say, no, I'm not happy in this marriage. And it's interesting, if the people who are not happy in marriage, research has shown this, two, you know, five years later, if you ask that same group of people, are you happy in your marriage? Two-thirds will say that they are now happy in their marriage. Because oftentimes if you stick out the hard times and you do what you need to do in order to make the marriage work, you'll find on the other side of that deep valley is oftentimes a mountaintop and things get better. Tim Keller in his book, uh, the Meaning of Marriage talks about uh, uh, Ulysses. Uh, in, some of you might know Ulysses from the Odyssey when he was on the ship and he was passing by the siren call. And uh, he, would be, he would be tempted to, to abandon the ship and, and, and plunge himself into death and have the ship hit the rocks if he heeded the siren call. And so he begged his shipmates to tie him to the mast so that at his worst, craziest moment, he wouldn't forsake it and then the ship gets sunk. And that's what we need in marriage. You know, all of us have had moments, if you are married, you've had moments where you or your partner gets into a crazy mode. You know, there have been moments in my own marriage, I mean, I, I'd be embarrassed, you know, if you guys were to be a fly on the wall and watch certain incidents and episodes in our marriage where my wife and I are yelling at each other at the top of our lungs. You're like, Pastor, you've done that? Yes, I have. And uh, moments where we are just irrational and we're angry 
and, and it's just like life is kind of like, it seems like it's spinning. You don't know, but, but you need to be bound to each other in the covenant so that you work through the junk and you get through the other side and you find the relationship is richer and fuller. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you are in a physically or a deeply scarred and emotionally abusive relationship, you need to stick in it. No, you need to be safe. And God loves you and wants you to be safe. And no spouse can use what I'm saying as a justification to say, no, you need to just stay in this marriage and submit to me while I abuse you. No, you don't. You need to get help and you need to get safety. But I am saying that all marriages go through dark valleys. And what the covenant does is it keeps you from walking away in those dark moments. The covenant also keeps you in long enough to deal with your own junk. You know, when you get, get married, you come into the marriage with all of your flaws. And so, for example, you may be a fearful person with a tendency to great anxiety, or a narcissistic person with a tendency to be selfish, or an inflexible person with a tendency to be demanding, or a flaky person with a tendency to be unreliable, or a perfectionistic person who tends to be too critical of other people, or an impatient, irritable person who tends to hold grudges, or a cowardly person who tends to twist the truth to look good, or that unfortunate person that just has all of these issues. (laughs) Everyone comes into marriage with stuff like that, you know, and your siblings told you about it, your parents told you about it. They tried to point it out to you, and you wrote it off, and it never really sunk in. And now the flaws that created small problems in other relationships all of a sudden create big problems in marriage, and you can't avoid it. And you know what? That's not such a bad thing, because it is those very flaws that are making you a difficult person to be around for other people. And look, you don't want to keep being a difficult person, do you? Well, some of you do. Stop it. But, but listen, you, 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 if you're a follower of Jesus, you want to grow. And the context for growth is this covenant relationship where you have to deal with stuff before you walk away or without walking away. And listen, it's not just true for marriage. You know, you ought to be in relationships with other people that you are so bound and so honest and vulnerable before those other people that they see your stuff and you are aware of your stuff that you let them call you out and name it and raise awareness so that you can change. And so the essence of marriage is a permanent, lifelong covenant. It's a bond. But secondly, let's talk about now the challenge of marriage. Look back again at verse 24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know how it says there, the man shall leave his father and mother? The reason why it says that is because in the ancient world, the primary loyalty that you had It wasn't an individualistic society. There were not lone rangers. Your primary loyalty in the ancient world was to your family. What you were about was the family name, the family goals, the family business. Uh, the, The family was everything to you. It was your core and chief priority. And what he's saying here is that when you get married, that 
former priority comes to an end and a new core priority begins and your new priority is your spouse and it's your marriage. Now, in our day and age, of course, in the modern world, we are not, we're we're more individualistic and so our main priority uh, before a person gets married is, it's just, it's not really so much your family and their priorities and their dreams or whatever, it's you. I mean, your life is mostly about you, your friends, your schedule, your work, your goals, your thoughts, and the rest of what makes your life your life. And so your center of gravity before you get married does not really traverse outside of you. You are it. But then uh, something beautiful happens. You know, you meet someone else who has their own life and center of gravity, you know, around themselves. And all of a sudden your heart shifts and you two start getting drawn to each other. And and then you enter into a marriage covenant and all of a sudden a new center of gravity emerges and it is this other person and it is the marriage. The marriage itself becomes the core priority in your life forsaking all others, I cling to you, leaving your father and mother and cleaving to your wife. Do you see this is the language of gaining a new priority? But listen, the work of marriage is living into that new priority. It's about living into your vows. Someone said it like this, the joining of a man and woman in matrimony is the one It's a supernatural event founded upon a mutual exchange of holy pledges. These pledges are the only true vows that most people will ever make. The saying of them requires about 30 seconds, but the keeping of them is the work of a lifetime. To keep a vow means not to keep from breaking it, but rather to devote the rest of one's life to discovering what that vow means and to be willing to change and grow accordingly. In other words, if you are married on your wedding day, you declared publicly and you made a covenant that now this person and this new relationship is the core priority in your life. And the question becomes throughout the rest of your married life, are you living into that priority? In other words, is your spouse, is the marriage, is it more important than your hobbies, than your me time? Is it more important than your job, your career? Is it more important than uh, your parents and your dad and what he thinks or your mom and what she thinks and all of that? Your core priority is your spouse. And so the question is, is are you prioritizing your spouse and your marriage? Now, I know you can hear that. And at a general level, you can say, well, of course, of course I am. But would... How you spend your time throughout the week tell that same story? And I think that's the question. Do you prioritize time alone with your spouse? Do you prioritize space to have those long and difficult conversations? Do you prioritize time for sex? Do you prioritize a time for dates? Do you prioritize time to be together? Do you financially prioritize the relationship? You know, I've been shocked in meeting with couples sometimes whose marriage is falling apart, and uh, they usually come see me because I'm free, (laughs) which, by the way, you can come see me. And sometimes I'll say, look, you need to get, you need more intensive help, 
And I'll make recommendations that are like, oh, we couldn't spend that much money on it. And yet the dude is making a $400 a month payment on his car. I guarantee you that a healthy marriage is going to make your life a whole lot more livable than that car. You know, a lot of people have a real nice car, but they can't go home at night because it's just unbearable. And the question is, is do you prioritize your marriage? You see, the tendency, the, almost like the force that is at work is to continually draw you back around the self because as the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, the, the, the sinfulness is the human heart curved in on itself. Or was that Calvin or Augustine? I'm asking our resident theologian over there. Said, everyone said it. So listen, the challenge of marriage is to continually move toward another person. It's to get outside of yourself and keep moving toward that relationship. And of course, marriage is not the only relationship that demands that you get outside of yourself and move toward the other and prioritize their needs above your own. I mean, isn't this what should mark all of our relationships in many respects? Isn't this what Jesus has taught us? Isn't this what he embodied? And that's the challenge of marriage. It's the challenge of just about any relationship. And so we've seen the essence of marriage. It's an exclusive and permanent bond. We've seen the challenge of marriage. It's to live into this bond, to prioritize this marriage. And then thirdly and finally, I, I want to just, just talk to you about the fruit of a healthy marriage. Now, I guess you could say the fruit of a healthy marriage might be offspring, sons and daughters. Of course, an unhealthy marriage can also produce offspring, can it? That's not what I'm talking about here in this text. Listen to, th this is what I'm talking about. Listen, right after he describes the two becoming one, this exclusive, permanent, leaving and cleaving new covenant relationship, notice the next phrase describes the, the, the environment now that they're enjoying in this new reality. Look what it says, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. It's interesting, the story of the first marriage opens with a problem. Something is not good, and what is it that's not good? It's not good to be alone in the world. Not even a perfect world. And what is the antidote to the loneliness? Notice, this is an incredibly psychologically powerful insight. The antidote to the loneliness is not simply the marriage. It's a marriage that is so secure. It's a covenant relationship that is so strong that in the context of that relationship, you can be naked and feel no shame. Scholar Bruce Waltke points out that when the author here talks about nakedness, he's not primarily speaking of physical nakedness. He's talking about something deeper and more profound. And just think for a moment about this analogy of being naked and feeling no shame. 
You know, what is it about the thoughts of being naked in a room that terrifies you? Mostly it's not that it's inappropriate, though it certainly would be, and that it would be incredibly awkward. I, I think the most difficult part of that is all of us have parts about our bodies that we don't want other people to see. And many of us have become skilled with having ourselves clothed in ways that accentuate the, the good parts and that hide those bad things. And that's an analogy for how human beings are in relationship with each other. There are parts of our soul, there are parts of us that we are terrified of anybody ever knowing about. And we have become really good with clothing ourselves with a false self so that people can't see those things. And yet when you are in a bond of love that is so strong and so safe, you can finally be vulnerable and intimate and you can let yourself be known. You see, there is a deep and abiding connection between intimacy and closeness and vulnerability. Staying vulnerable is the risk we have to take if we really want to experience genuine connection with another human being. Sociologist Brene Brown points out that the thing that kills vulnerability, the thing that actually prevents us from being real, from exposing ourselves emotionally with another person, is shame. And isn't it interesting that in this text, there's this deep connection between nakedness and feeling no shame. They were naked and they were not ashamed. And it's crazy because it is shame that actually drives you away from vulnerability. And then it unravels connection. And what is shame? Shame is that sense that there is something wrong with me. You know, guilt is me feeling I've done something wrong. Shame is when I feel like I'm wrong. Shame is, again, to quote Brene Brown, that sense that I am not smart enough, accomplished enough, my kids are not well-behaved enough, my marriage is not put together enough, I am not thin enough or, or handsome enough or successful enough, I am not enough. Shame works like a zoom lens on a camera. When we are feeling shame, the camera is zoomed in tight and all we see are our flawed selves, alone and struggling. And it is this shame that causes us to run and to hide, to cover ourselves. And isn't that exactly what happens in Genesis 3? The shame, when they're exposed, when they're, when they're known, they run and the first thing they do is they cover themselves. And what do they cover themselves? They cover themselves with fig leaves. The first human couple to hide their shame covered themselves in fig leaves, and the human race has been doing the same thing year after year, all the way up until today in Sierra Madre in the 21st century. We have been drawing upon fig leaves to hide our shame and for some of us, 
you know, we, we, we draw upon all kinds of stuff that are completely unhealthy for us to hide our shame, which is why Americans are the most in-debt, obese, addicted, medicated adult group in, adult, in U.S. history. And it's because we seek to numb our shame, maybe with a couple more beers and a banana, and a banana nut bread muffin. Or maybe with our tendency towards perfectionism, where we have to control every outcome in our life and control our image. And we can't stand anything about ourselves that feels imperfect. Or we cover ourselves with blame, blaming others, blaming self. And what is blame but a way to discharge our pain and discomfort? Or we seek to make an uncertain world certain. We take the mystery and the beauty and the wonder of faith and we make it primarily an issue of I'm right and safe and I have all the answers and you don't. I'm okay and you're not. And they're all fig leaves. They're inadequate ways to actually cover our shame. And the thing is, is when you are trying to cover your shame, you run away from the very thing that will create intimacy and safety and, and health in those closest relationships, especially in that closest of relationships, marriage. You prevent yourselves from being vulnerable and honest and authentic and real before another human being. And so listen, if you, if I, if we are to actually grow into the fruit of a healthy marriage and health in all of our strongest and most important relationships, if we are to grow in, 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 into actually experiencing the fruit of these relationships, being safety and security, enough to be known and real and vulnerable and honest, then number one, number one, you have to have the courage to be vulnerable. We cultivate love when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable because people can know the real us. And so I just want to challenge you in your relationships, maybe this week, take time in those closest of relationships and disclose something about yourself that you are afraid of another person knowing because you will not grow into health. Actually, the, the strange thing is, is we are afraid that the people we love are gonna just, you know, get upset or react negatively, and maybe they will, maybe they won't, but you know, that relationship will never grow in intimacy unless we take the courageous step and risk to be vulnerable. Secondly, we have to come to realize and accept and embrace that we are worthy of love and belonging. Listen, you are worthy of love and belonging. You are not perfect. You are a failure. You have failed in a lot of stuff in your life. You've blown it, but you are worthy of love and belonging. And I know that you are worthy of love and belonging because the creator of all things who determines what is worthy and what is valuable, has spent everything to purchase you. You know, in, in a market economy, how do you determine what your house is worth? 
What is your house worth? You ask a real estate agent, he'll tell you, your house is worth whatever somebody is willing to pay for it, right? And listen, you are worth whatever the creator of heaven and earth has been willing to spend on you. And he has given his very self, the infinite and eternal ocean of love and wholeness and being has incarnated himself in Jesus Christ to give himself fully and unreservedly for you. You are worthy of love. Do you see that? You are okay. You can be yourself. You can be honest. You can be truthful about your failures. You can be truthful and honest about your success. You can be real and authentic in your marriage and in those closest relationships because you are worthy of love. And if you are married or maybe you're a parent or maybe you've got siblings or you've got parents or you've got friends or, in other words, if you're just alive and breathing today, There are people in your life who need to hear from you, who need to experience from you that they are worthy and loved. They need to know that they are not just an object of your critical evaluation. They are not simply an object of your ongoing, low-grade disappointment. You know how crushing that is for a child? What they need above all else is to know that they are worthy of love. And of course, to be dispensers of that, we need to be those who receive that kind of love. This time, I want to invite our band to come up. And we're going to close like this. You know... um, There's two moments in Jesus' life that have always captured my imagination. And the relationship between those two moments is everything. And the first is when Jesus goes to be baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, and he's plunged underneath the water, and he comes up, and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And in that moment, the Father speaks. And you could almost see the Father smile over his son as he says, this is my beloved child. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the second moment is the moment on the cross that is the exact inverse of that moment where Christ experiences in a dark hour not the Father's approval, but his rejection. And he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he plunges into the depths of God-forsakenness. And these two moments are related to us in this way. Christ stepped into what we deserve. 
namely God-forsakenness because of our own failures and all of the stuff that makes us wrong. He stepped into that darkness so that we might join with him in the waters of baptism and hear that word from the Father that says, you are my son or daughter and I love you. I am delighted in you. The same joy I feel over my son, I feel over you. And as we close, I just want to invite you just to to close your eyes right now. And the band is going to sing a song over us. And I want to just invite you just to put your body in a posture of receptivity and maybe even just open up your hands as you sit before God and the band is going to sing over you a song that are words from God himself of God's blessing and joy over you. And I just want to invite you to receive these words into your own heart and life. We will never be able to give love to others unless we receive from that eternal well of love from God ourselves. Come, Holy Spirit, in this moment and in this place. Come and make the words of the gospel live in our hearts and lives and experience. Help us to be recipients of this good news of your eternal love in Christ. Amen.